This is Revelation 12, 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, had a, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon of his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers who has been thrown down, who accuses them, and day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Sammy has just read, which is the very word of God. Let's ask that he would teach us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone to to make sense out of life um, using our, our minds alone and our eyes alone and our ears alone, but you have spoken the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Lord, God, creator. You have graciously condescended to to speak to us that we might make sense out of life and that we might have hope. 
We pray that you would take these words which are strange to our ears and that you would teach us and you would encourage us and that you would make us like Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are really, really thankful that you have decided to join us today. Like lots of churches around the world in the month of December, we are in the middle of an Advent series. And you might be wondering, well, if you're in the middle of an Advent series, why are we looking at Revelation 12? Um, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. Um, The church has longed from its inception for the, the coming of Christ. Actually, the church, Old Testament, longed for the coming of Christ, and we too long for the coming of Christ. There's a sense in which the entire Bible is one sort of extended Advent meditation, at least beginning in Genesis 3 and following. What I mean is that everything from Genesis 3 forward looks to the day when in the words of God pronounced to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. That's what the whole Bible sort of lays out and unpacks. There's a sense in which everything that follows God's promise in Genesis 3.15 leads to this sort of eager expectation, this longing, this, this, this hoping for the fulfillment of God's promise, which the prophets of old called the day of the Lord in which John, the author of Revelation, describes as a day when Christ Jesus will come again with the clouds to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. So, again, why are we looking at Revelation 12? As a quick reminder, the book of Revelation was written to seven churches in what is today um, Turkey. Uh, It's written to seven churches, not six churches, not eight churches, and there's a reason for that. Seven in the book of Revelation is a symbolic number, and it symbolizes completeness or fullness, which means that while this letter was um, definitely written with particular churches in mind, just read Revelation 2 and 3, very, very particular churches in mind. It's also written to all of the church for all time, which means that it's written for us. I'm sorry, I lost myself. Now, there are some things going on in these seven churches that you should be aware of. Some of these churches are struggling with apathy due to uh, wealth and affluence. Sounds very much like the American church. Other churches are morally compromised. People are sleeping around and they are continuing to dabble in the pagan practices of the day. Still others are tolerating teaching that tickles their ears and suits their passion, teaching that, that tells them what they want to hear. And still others are, are just sort of going through the motions. They profess that they love Christ, and yet they've lost their love for Christ. Uh, one thing that all of these churches have in common is that they all face this growing sense of hostility from the surrounding peoples. Because Christians will not bend the knee to the emperor, to the emperor Domitian, they are more and more uh, being viewed as not only unpatriotic, but actually as real and present dangers to the empire. And as a result, 
Christians are beginning to be persecuted because they call Christ their Lord and their God. So here's the question. What is John doing in Revelation 12? Well, in the words of Scotty Smith, which are uh, noted at the top of your bulletin under the reflection, John is, in Revelation 12, he is pushing back the curtain of human history. And you have to ask why. Scotty Smith goes on. He, he, he pushes back the curtain of human history so that his readers, which include us, might be filled with what? Filled with, with hope. He gives us these words to fill us with hope. So what do we see when John pushes back the curtain on human history? War. War. We see that when Christ calls us to himself, he calls us into war. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. The rest of her offspring is us. When Christ calls us to himself, he calls us into war. In the words of Paul Tripp, what John is teaching us is that there is a war out there and it is being fought on the turf of your heart It's fought for the control of your soul. Each situation you face today is a skirmish in the war. Be careful. Be aware of the battle. Don't forget that there is a scheming enemy out there who is out to deceive, divide, and destroy. Go out knowing that to win, you must fight. You must not relax. You must not forget. Christ has called us to war, which raises a number of questions. The first is this, what is the nature of this war? Look at verses one through five. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, what is that all about? What's going on? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to ask a couple of questions. Who is this woman? Who is the red dragon and who is this child? And I'd like to do that by thinking easiest to most difficult. And the easiest is obvious because John tells us who the red dragon is. In verse nine, John says this. He says, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So, who is this red dragon? John tells us, it's the devil. Now, I know that we live in a day and age where we, we tend to think this stuff is, is fairy tale-ish. We live in a disenchanted universe. We, we, we have... We have decided that everything has material, physical causes and just give us enough time and we can make sense out of all of this stuff if, if, if we just study and do scientific experiments and think long and hard enough. 
Um, but here's the thing. I don't think it's the case. And certainly it's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we have a real enemy called the devil. Think about it like this. Why, why do you believe in the devil? Why do I believe in the devil? One reason, one reason you might believe in the devil is Matthew 4. You may remember the story. Jesus has um, just been baptized and he is led by the spirit out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and at the end of his 40 day fast, who appears? None other than the devil. The devil tempts Jesus three times and three times Jesus refuses the devil's temptation and then we're told, then the devil left him. Now, here's the question. How do we know this story? Well, Matthew tells us this story, right? And actually so does Mark, yeah, so does Mark and so does Luke. But you have to ask a question, how, how do Matthew, Mark, and Luke know this story? Were they there? None of them were there. How do they know the story? They only know this story because Jesus told them this story. The only way they learned about this story is because Jesus himself explained it to them. Beloved, one of the reasons I believe in the devil is because Jesus believed in the devil. What do we know about the devil? Well, we know that he is real, he is personal, and he is a creation. He is not God. He is not omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. And yet, at the same time, he is unbelievably powerful. As John tells us in verse 12, he's coming in great wrath. And in verse 17, he is furious. So, there's the, de- the dragon. What about, but what about the child? Who is this child? Well, look at verse five. We read, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his thrones. Now, what John's original readers would have known that you may or may not know is that this description of one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron is a direct quote from Psalm 2, chapter 9. It is a psalm that has always been thought of messianically. And it is a psalm that is over and over and over applied in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. In other words, the male, child in, in, the male child in John's vision is Jesus. And what we have in verse five is a one-verse summary of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I heard one pastor this week dry, describe verse five as John's Christmas telling. Well, what about, what about the woman? Well, you might think, that since Mary was the mother of Jesus, that the woman that is being described in this passage is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But here's the deal. Mary was never persecuted. As far as we know, Mary was never persecuted. So who is this woman? Does this passage give us any indication, any clue? Well, I would suggest, yes. Look at verse one. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. What is John saying? John is tapping back into the Hebrew Bible. He is tapping back into the story of God's people. In fact, you can't actually make sense of Revelation if you don't understand or if you are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Scholars estimate that as many as 700 or 278 of the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation contain references to the Old Testament and that there are over 500 allusions in the book of Revelation to to um, passages or people or types in the Old Testament. For comparison purposes, there are less than 200 references and allusions in all of the writings of the Apostle Paul combined. Again, what this means is that if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. You need to know the Old Testament. So what does is, what is this description tap into? The woman is described as she, she's clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and, with, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Well, there's a story in Genesis 37 about Joseph. You might remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Israel. He has a dream. And he has this dream where he sees the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And he gets his family together, his brothers, his mother, his father, and he tells them this dream. And they are actually really offended. Why? Why are they offended? It's because they know that they are the sun, the moon, and the stars. And, and in this dream, Joseph, God is telling Joseph that, that, that his siblings, his family, the people of God will bow down to him. What does, that, what does that tell us about Revelation 12? Well, it means this. It means that the woman in Revelation 12 is God's people. It's God's people, God's Old Testament people and God's New Testament people. She represents the people of God throughout the ages. Not just Mary, but the people of God throughout the ages. So the real question is, is what is the nature of this war? What does this passage teach us about the nature of war? Well, I would suggest three things to you. First is this. It is spiritual in nature. What John is telling us in this passage is the same thing that the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter six, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is unbelievably important to know. It's unbelievably important to know because it's very easy to see others or even to see each other as our enemy. And that's simply not the case. Now, that's not to say that we sometimes don't have arguments. It's not to say that we sometimes don't have disagreements. It's not to say that we aren't sometimes in conflict with one another, but here's what it does mean. It means that your enemy isn't just someone who holds a different opinion than you. And your enemy isn't somebody 
who, who just doesn't believe what you believe or live like how you believe. What John is telling us here is that our enemy is the devil. That's very important to know. Second thing, and this is so, so important. John is telling us that the devil has been defeated. Look at verses seven to 10. Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Bizarre words. They raise all kinds of questions like why, what was the devil doing in heaven in the first place? Or when exactly was the devil thrown down? The fact of the matter is this passage does not answer those questions. But what this passage does tell us is that Satan has been cast out of heaven. Now, some folks believe that what's being described in this passage took place sometime after God created the heavens and the earth and before Adam and even ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that this is sort of a pre-fall event. Other people believe, and, and honestly, I think I'm in this boat, that be, and it's because of what John says in verse five about Jesus, that the casting out that's mentioned in verse nine is tied to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But what's absolutely clear is this. The devil has been defeated. John writes, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. And what that means is this. It means that that although as Christians we are at war with the devil, Sin, death, and the devil have ultimately been defeated. That what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is true. Death, where is your sting? There is no sting because Christ has been raised from the dead. It means that we are no longer enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. It means that we have hope to change. It means that we are no longer numbered among the spiritually walking dead. It means that we can resist the devil and he will flee. And it means that we no longer have to fear being separated from the love of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus. We learn one last thing about the nature of the war and that is this, that although the devil has been defeated, the devil is still at work. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious and the woman with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's us. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I learned something yesterday. Did you know that the head of a decapitated venomous snake can bite you hours after the head has been decapitated? Like just because you cut his head off doesn't mean like it's all good. The head can still bite you because there's this this reflex that for some reason continues to work. 
And you can be bitten by the head of a dead, venomous snake. Beloved, that is a picture of what we see in this passage. That is a picture of the devil. His head has been crushed. Christ has crushed his head. And yet he can still wound us. He can still do damage. This is so important to keep in mind because you might be tempted to think that because Jesus um, has, has conquered the devil since the devil's been thrown down, since the devil has been defeated, that my life following Jesus should be smooth sailing. That was certainly my expectation growing up in the church. If I could just pray the sinner's prayer, if I just believed, everything's gonna be great. But that's not the case. You know that and I know that. That's operating with a peacetime mentality. What is the peacetime mentality? A peacetime mentality, um, in times of peace, people give themselves to luxury, leisure, and pleasure. They focus on their wants and their desires. Their, motto, their, their, their motto is, um, it's all good. Don't worry, be happy. But if that's what you think the Christian life is supposed to be, you're gonna be sorely disappointed by and woefully unprepared for the experiences that you have following Christ. More than that, when things get hard and things will get hard, you might be tempted to think, there must be something wrong with me because this Christianity thing doesn't seem to be working. Or you might think, this Christianity thing isn't true because it doesn't seem to be working. That was my conclusion when I graduated from high school and went to college. I prayed the sinner's prayer a billion, zillion times and for whatever reason, it didn't seem to work. It's because my expectations were completely flawed. They were completely screwed up. We have an enemy. While he has been crushed under the heel of Jesus, he is still at work and he can still inflict damage. John wants us to know that while the devil has been defeated, the devil is still at work, at least for a short time. So what are the strategies that the devil uses? Um, In the words of a Puritan pastor, Thomas Brooks, though he can never rob a believer of his crown, yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned, no means unattempted to rob them of their comfort and peace, to make their life a burden and a hell, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning and sighing and complaining and in doubting and questioning. Here's what the devil wants. He just wants to make you miserable. How does the devil do this? Well, in verse nine, John describes the devil as what? as the deceiver of the whole world. Here's what you need to know. The devil's strategy is almost never a full frontal assault. A full frontal, full frontal assault. He almost never comes in through the front door. He almost never comes with both guns blazing. He is way more subtle. He is way more sly. A deceiver makes a person believe that things are other than they are so that the person deceived will do something that he or she would otherwise never do. Let me give you an example. Some of you might have gotten an email from me this week saying, hey, I need some help. Would you mind giving me a call? But I didn't write that email. Somebody harvested the emails on the City Church website 
And then they created a, uh, an, an email with my name in it, jeffwilkins109 at gmail.com. And they sent out emails to the other emails that were listed on our website from me. Now, <laughs> why would somebody do this? He's fishing. They're fishing with a, fi- with a P, right? They're fishing. They, the person who did that wants you to think that I'm emailing you so that if you, pr- if, if you answer that email, they'll, they'll get back to you and they'll say, hey, would you mind sending me such and such amount of money? This, this person wants money and he wants you to think that you're sending your money to me, but you're not sending your money to me. You're sending your money somewhere, who knows where. Um, that's, that's deception. Trying to make someone believe that things are other than they are so that you do something that you would never otherwise do. And what John is telling us is that that's the devil's modus operandi. And here's what makes this so scary. Oftentimes, the devil takes something that is true and he slightly twists it. He, he tweaks it to get you to believe something you would not otherwise believe so that you might do something that you otherwise might not do. Take, for instance, our assurance of pardon this morning. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is glorious. It is the truth of the gospel. But if we're not careful, what the devil does is he takes the truth of the gospel and he twists it ever so slightly to soft pedal a temptation. What do I mean? Imagine... Imagine you find yourself in the throes of temptation. Maybe it's thinking about something you you know you shouldn't think about, or maybe it's doing something that you know you shouldn't do. How does the devil deceive you? By very subtly suggesting to you, hey, you're saved by grace. Hey, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Jesus, he paid it all. Your sin is covered. Go ahead. It's no big deal. Have you ever thought that? I know I have. But here's the the truth. You are saved by grace. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has paid it all. But sin isn't something that we toy with. Sin isn't something that we just sort of play with and we fondle. Sin is a big deal. Sin is dangerous. Sin will destroy. Paul tells us in Romans chapter six that the wages of sin is death. James tells us that if we break one law, we are held accountable to God. And just in case you think Paul and James are sort of speaking hyperbolically, Jesus... God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, had to die on a cross because of our sin. Sin is a very big deal. It is not to be played with. It is not to be toyed with. This kind of deception is the devil's modus operandi. But that's not all that John tells us. John also tells us in verse 10 that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Now, think about, I I was thinking about this this week. What happens when you take the devil's bait? Hey, it's no big deal. 
I mean, come on. Jesus paid it all. You're covered. You're saved by grace. What, what's, what's one little indulgence? What's one little click of the mouse? What's one little piccadillo? It's, hey, it's, you're not hurting anybody. It's, it's not that big of a deal. What, what happens if, if you listen and you take that bait? What happens? The devil crushes you with condemnation. He comes at you with accusations. You're not a real Christian because no real Christian would ever do that. You ever heard that? The grace that you claim to know can't be true for you because if that grace was true, you would have never done that. The hope you profess, it's the hope of a hypocrite. And you know what Jesus thinks of hypocrites. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience? That sort of that crushing condemnation? Beloved, here's what you, you have to know. The devil's strategy is, is twofold. Number one, his strategy is to try to hide the cross from you. Why? So that you won't take sin seriously. And the devil's strategy is to hide you from the cross so that when you don't take sin seriously, he, he can condemn you. He can crush you. He can say to you, you are beyond redeeming. You are beyond the reach of God's grace. That is the devil's modus operandi, to deceive us and then to accuse us. What are we to do? What are our weapons in this war? Well, John tells us in verse 11 and verse 17. In verse 11, he says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And in verse 17, then the devil became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What are our weapons when we are deceived? John tells us, verse 11, it is the word of testimony. John tells us in verse 17, it's, it's the word, it's the testimony of Jesus. Beloved, the testimony is the word of God and it is the word about God. It is the word about Jesus and the life that he has come to give. The psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In your light do we see light. And we see the testimony in flesh and blood in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. God's word, and particularly his word made flesh in Christ Jesus, must be the glasses we wear to make sense out of life in our world. In his light, do we see light? And what is our weapon against accusation? Verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Beloved, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. His grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. 
He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the words of the psalmist, as far as the east is from the west, he has taken our sins and he's removed them from us. In the words of the prophet Micah, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, never to bring them up again. And what this means is that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. It means that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It means that he never will leave us or forsake us. These are our weapons against the deceit and accusation of the devil, the testimony of Jesus and the blood of the lamb. And what this means is that we need to submerge ourselves. We need to drown ourselves in the word of God and in the God of the word. Not because doing these things will make God love us any more than he loves us right now. Because he can't love us any more than he loves us right now. We, we do these things we, we gather together to worship. We read the word. We pray. We sing. We, we read the Bible on our own. We gather in community. We remind one another of the gospel. We, we gospel one another so that we might begin to comprehend more and more with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Jesus. We don't do this, these things to make God love us. We do these things so that we begin to understand the love of God for us. These are the weapons of grace that God has given us so that we might be equipped to wage war against the deceit and accusations of the devil. Let me close with this. Scotty Smith says that God pushed back the curtain of human history to let us peer backstage so that we might be filled with hope as we assume our role in his sovereign plans and purposes. And you think, man, he's been talking about war. How, where's the hope, Jeff? Where's the hope? Well, the hope is what we see and what we celebrate at the table On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples and he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood and it is given for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. At the table, we are reminded of the seriousness of sin and we're reminded of the magnitude of the love of God for sinners. That that, that God would become flesh, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve so that he might make us his sons and daughters. The apostle Paul tells us uh, years later uh, uh, in the letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians Uh, I think it's chapter 12, no, chapter 11. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and he says that whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember the Lord's death until what? Until he comes again. This table is a reminder that our sin is serious, that God's love is greater than our deepest, darkest sin and that he is coming and he will finally and fully crush Satan under his heel. He will bring the new heavens and the new earth. We will see him as he is. Sin will be no more. And we will be who we were created to be, standing in the presence of God, gazing on his beauty 
and falling down in his presence and worshiping with the other saints. If you're a believer, if this is your hope that Jesus is coming again, if you look to him for life and forgiveness, then I invite you this morning, come to the table and feed on him. But Jeff, I'm kind of struggling these days. Didn't do so great this last week. This table is for you. This table is not for people who have their ducks in a row. This table is for people who are broken, who know that they need a savior. If you know you need a savior, come to the table this morning and feed. If you're here and you're thinking, I don't know if I buy what he's selling, I would suggest to you, don't come to the table. Instead, I would encourage you, pray. Say, hey, God, if you really exist, would you persuade me? And then come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about Jesus. I'd love to sit down and hear your questions and and we can just talk. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna invite the musicians forward. And then once we serve the musicians, I'll invite the rest of you forward. So pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this, what seems like a bizarre passage, but actually this really rich, deep, wonderful passage that reminds us that, that um, we live um, between the already and the not yet. We live in a time of advent. Uh, of advent. We live in a time of waiting. Thank you that, that you don't just tell us, hey, you're gonna wait, but you actually, you actually give us the instruments of the gospel uh, with which we might wage war against sin and Satan. Thank you for this table which reminds us of the seriousness of our sin and of the, the amazing grace of your love. We pray this morning that you would help us to believe. We believe, Lord, help us overcome our unbelief. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.